let's get to the Word. We are finishing up First John, and I hope that you've enjoyed this series. It's my favorite book of the New Testament. It was the first one that I memorized, too, and I've got to say, if you're into memorizing Scripture, this is a great, if you want to go through and memorize a book at a time, this one is phenomenal, and you'll see it come alive in your life over and over again as you go through and memorize it. First John. Now, the second half of his letter, we're in the second half now, the first half was a test of fellowship, right? John says, listen, let's test your fellowship with God. It had nothing to do with salvation. He says, how close are you walking with God? And he gave us three tests, practical things we could look at in our life to say, am I living close to my Lord? The last three chapters, John invites us then to test our sonship. He says, make sure that your faith is legitimate. Uh, test basically your salvation. Are you really, is your faith the kind of faith that saves? Are you walking with Jesus? And it's a little bit scary sometimes as Christians, but that's not John's purpose. In fact, remember in, in chapter 5, we had our memory verse a couple weeks ago. He says, he writes these things to you so that you may know that you are saved. There is a comfort that we have in, in walking with the Lord. And so he gives us this, uh, this great um, uh, opportunity to... Uh, to look at our faith, examine it, and say, God, am I really walking with you? Is my faith a true and legitimate faith? Now, um, one thing that we, we find of is, is in this section is that uh, there's a theme that goes all the way through it, and the theme is this, God is love. You'll see that all the way through it. That salvation isn't based upon you. None of us are going to have perfect faith. As you go through these tests, nobody's going to ace it. That's okay. Right? It lets us look at our faith and say, am I on the right path? But there's a God of love who carries us, and there is a lot of grace that is in this. So um, as we start, every week we like to have a memory verse. And so if you're new with us, what we do is we just kind of say it along together, and then we kind of get into our heart, and then um, we'll give you some tools for how to use this later on. But our memory verse today is 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And now the next part of that verse, which goes on, it says, and that is exactly what we are. But I didn't want to give you too many words. So we're going to start with this. You're God's child family, not slave. How good. What great news. Now, in your, in your bulletin, there is a Bible memory verse card. It looks like a business card. And I invite you to take that out. And you can put it in your pocket, your wallet, tape it the back of your phone, take a picture of it, make it your lock screen, whatever. But go back to that verse. I think oftentimes the enemy tries to trick us, and he tells us we're in who we are not. And I want you to think about children and parents, right? I mean, sometimes children are naughty and, and oftentimes imperfect, but they are children. And there's a home that they get to come to, isn't there? That God loves you in this incredible way, not because of what you do, but because you're his child. What an amazing thing that is. And we have to start, I think, from that foundation as we begin looking into this next chapter. In fact, I think it's important. Chapter 3, verse 1 is where it begins before even the test right? The reminder of God's great love and our position in his kingdom by grace. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn them to, to 1 John chapter 3. That's going to be on page 800 and, uh, 856 in our Bibles. If you uh, forgot your Bible, we've got a whole bunch of them there in the back. If you need a Bible, just take it, keep it, our gift to you. Um, and so uh, we get there. Now, as you'll be going through this, there are three tests that John gives us to test our sonship in him. And these are the three tests. The first one is obedience. The second test is fellowship. And the third test is truth. Does that sound familiar? Well, if you are here last week, it should, because that's the same three tests he helps us do with, with relationship. Uh, are we close with God? And so um, that's kind of a, a cool thing that goes through. So the first test is the test of obedience. 
right? And so a true child of God, right? We are called children of God is what it said in, in chapter 3, right? And that is what we are. And it says the reason that the world does not know him, is it, uh, does not know us, is that it didn't know him. We are family in him. And so we have this relationship to him, and that relationship should affect how we live, right? There is a culture in the family of God. And so we can look and say, am I really acting in this way? Do I have that culture in me? Now, Jesus is Savior, and if he's going to be Savior, then he also needs to be Lord. If you're going to be in God's house, then God's rules, right? That's, that's part of the way that it goes. And so he gives us, John gives us five motivations in this, next, this whole chapter, chapter 3, for obedience. And the first motivation that God gives us, or that John gives us, is God's wonderful love. All right, in verse 1, he says, uh, uh, you know, see what great love? You know, literally in the Greek what that is, it's what foreign love. You see, what foreign love the Father has for us. And that's why it says the world doesn't understand who we are. If you wonder, like, what he's talking about, the world doesn't recognize us. It says that the way that God has loved it is foreign to this world. It is foreign to everything. Like, to have grace when you don't deserve it, to choose you when, when, when we've rejected him, that is different than the world. Right? And so the first thing that he, John points to is the reason that we should follow God, as he begins with this, is that God has this amazing different kind of love for us. He loves you different than you would naturally love other people. And, and the Gospel of John, chapter 15, uh, Jesus is quoted as saying, if you love me, right, we, we has this love for us. He says, if you love me, there's something that we're going to do for him. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I think that's a great thing. Now, God's not giving us commandments because he likes to boss us around, but because he loves us that much. I think of in my home, you know, when, uh, for my son, you know, when, when I'm raising him, there were certain things that we say, you know, if you love me, Thomas, <laughs> you're going to do some, some certain things, like you're not going to drink bleach, right? Like, if you really love me, because that would hurt me too. There are certain things that God tells us, I want you to do, and it's not only just because he's not up there looking for a power trip. God is almighty. He's there trying to help us. And Jesus says, if you love me, there's a different way to live. And so our first motivation is, is that, uh, that we're going to have his love changes how we live. But the second one is Christ's promise return. We get that in verse 2 and 3. It says, dear friends, now that we are children of God, what we will be has not been made known. But, what, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And all of us who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Don't miss that last part. We know that Jesus is coming back, right? It's not a game. Christianity, our faith is not just a nice pastime. It's not something that we come and do. It's not a club. Jesus is real, and he is returning. And we have to stop playing footsie with the Almighty and recognize that he is Lord and he is God. And that should motivate us a little bit, shouldn't it? Right? Jesus told all kinds of parables about the boss who gave the worker something to do and he was going to go away and then he would come back. Right? Or, or that, you know, that there was things that were expected in his return. There, like when, when, when the boss or the lord of the, of the land or whatever returned, there had to be you know, the people that were doing the work. There was good reward and those who were lazy, there was bad reward. <laughs> there were consequence. I think it should motivate us to know that Jesus is coming back. And not in a bad way. We should look forward to it. But we should live our lives in such a way that we will look forward to it and not be ashamed. Now, uh, when Jesus comes back, it says we're going to be perfected, just like Christ. It means right now, are you perfected? No. So that means that you're not going to do all this perfect, are you? 
No, because if you did, then you'd be perfected. Right? So the expectation is that you're not doing this perfect, and God knows that. So we're not talking the perfection of your obedience, but we need to be the attitude of obedience. That's what we're looking for. Is your life different? Are you actually serving God? And one of the motivations is knowing that there will be consequence. Now, purifying yourself, what does that mean? Clean living. That's what it means. He's going to purify us just as he's pure. God wants to take our, our dirty, nasty lifestyles and help us live a better way pure life, a good life. I know, what a great gift is that? So if we're going to purify ourselves just as he is pure, that's what it says here, right? So there is some sanctification. There's a part that says that the Lord will change us and we'll be like he is, but there's also that personal dedication. Anyone who, any, all who have this hope in him purify themselves. There is an attitude of obedience. There's an attitude of saying, I'm going to live a different kind of life. I'm going to live a clean life. Just like Christ had. Now, Second uh, Corinthians seven one says this. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. This is not a, a theme that we find only here in John, but actually all the way through Scripture. And if you look at the the, the the teachings of Jesus, all the way through, he's saying, "Listen, if you want to follow me, then follow me." Right? There's a different way of living. And can any of us perfect the Spirit? No. That's where God's Holy Spirit helps us. But we have to start, we've got to need working along with the Holy Spirit, don't we? There has to be this, this attitude that says, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and spirit. So one of the things that we need to do as we look into our lives as a test of, am I walking with the Lord, is saying, am I really walking with the Lord? And recognize that you're going to find areas, because you're not perfectly pure, that you're not. You're not condemned because you have those, but the attitude of your heart should be, Lord, I'm handing these over to you. I'm learning in this one area how to follow you now. We cannot cling forever to dirty lives. What a great thing. And so we find here that, that uh, in, in the word, even like theologians, we like to parse things down to like the tiniest, like the split hairs in half and then split those half of hairs in half. That's what theologians we love to do. And one of the things I, I think that's, there's a value to it, but sometimes it muddies the water. Have you ever heard the, the term saving uh, faith and sanctifying faith? Have you ever heard that? You know you're not going to find that in Scripture. There's faith. That's what there is. The, the same faith that saves you is, is the same faith that sanctifies you. The Christians aren't supposed to be looking for this finish line. Oh, I'm saved. Now it doesn't matter what I do. The Christian life is to, hey, I'm following Jesus. That's what it needs to be. And so salvation is by grace through faith. It is. Right? Salvation is not through obedience, not by works so that no one can boast. We get that. But also we find in Scripture very clearly that faith is always expressed in obedience. What does James say? That you have faith but no works? It's like, can that faith save you? So the question is, and I know this is theologically murky waters because people like, we, we've divided churches over smaller matters. But I think if we go to the word, we recognize how's a person saved? We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, right? He's our Lord and Savior. That's how somebody is saved. And faith, what is faith? Well, faith is something that has always got to be expressed, not just in the head, but in our lives. That's the way that it is. And so we, we find that we need to have that obedience in our life because we know that Christ is going to come back. It matters how we believe how we live. 
Now, the third te- the reason that motivation is, the, is that Christ's death on the cross should motivate us towards obedience. We get that in, in verses 4 through 8. It says, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, uh, in fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now, he's not talking about the fact that you're going to have impure lives, right? That was the beginning. You're going to be purified, right? So we have to take all this in context. We're talking about just obstinate, high-handed sin. Talks about it in Hebrews, right? There's these things that say, listen, I have to recognize that in my life, God has got to have lordship over everything. He has to have the ability for me to say, you know what, Lord, I'm turning this over to you. Not my way, but yours. We can't stand before God and say, I'm going to do what I want. To be a follower of Jesus, to be in his kingdom, we have to say, Abba, Father, you are in charge. And I listen to you. But one of the motivations that he gives us is saying, listen, Jesus could have just crushed us because we were, we were lawbreakers. Sin is lawlessness. Did you get that? You are anarchists. I am an anarchist. You ever think about that? When you do something naughty or bad, right? You're at Safeway and somebody is mean to you and you're like, oh, lightning bolts on him, right? And all of a sudden you're like, I am an anarchist, right? Like, I have committed treason against the Almighty. Think of what happens in our country if somebody commits treason. That's the death penalty. We commit treason against God all the time. Tell him his laws. No, nah, I don't want to listen to your laws, God. I want to do my own. He could have destroyed us, but he didn't because of his great love. But that great law, love came at a great cost, didn't it? And that needs to motivate us, that our purity came at a cost. And then we recognize sometimes that we receive grace so freely that we can mistake it for being cheap. It is valuable. And so we look at our life and say, you know, God, you saved me not so that I could continue to live in this mucky, nasty life, that I would live as a lawless person, but God, that I could live a better way. And that needs to motivate us, right? Sometimes when we look to the cross and we look at the high cost of sin, and we also look into the world and we see how messed up it is because people do what they think is right, I think we look and we say, God, here's a motivation that I need to... That helps me follow him. Because sometimes I disagree with God. But when I disagree with God, who's wrong? Right? See, the thing is, is that the scripture also says that whoever abides in him uh, doesn't habitually sin. That's actually kind of a way that you would say that whoever uh, lives in him can't keep on sinning. It says whoever abides in him is not going to be habitually sinning. It's not going to be a person that just says, this thing is what I'm always going to do, and that's my new identity. I think in our life, and I have got sins too that I have been working on for decades, right? And there are times I'm really strong in those things and I'm doing really, really well. And then there are times that I'm not doing really well in those. But never once do I claim that those are who I am anymore, right? That's the difference. Fourth reason that he gives us is that we have a new nature. Verses 9 through 18, it's, a, it's pretty amazing that you don't have to live that way. Verses uh, 19, it says... Uh, I'm sorry, verse uh, 9. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. One of the happiest passages in all of Scripture. Isn't that awesome? Now think about how it says that God's seed is in you. Think about a seed. Does it just 
grow up like we just walk, you know, you're just walking along the forest and you kick a pine cone and it gets in the dirt and all of a sudden, boom, tree. Is that how it works? No. It's a process, isn't it? It's beautiful and slow, and sometimes for a long time, you don't even see anything. And right now, it's spring, and some of you are gardeners, right? And you're starting, you're planting seeds in the dirt, and the dirt is dead, and it's ugly, and it's messy, because it's dirt, right? And you put the seed of life in there, and you water it, and you let it sit, and for a long time, it doesn't look like anything's happened, but there's life down there, isn't it? And you wait long enough, and all of a sudden, you see the green shoots start coming up, and it's a miracle. And you're like, what happened? And eventually you don't see the dirt anymore, but you see the life. And it's like you. God's seed is in you. His Holy Spirit is working in you. There's power to change you from the inside out. When I first became a Christian, I had a bad temper. And there are some here that knew me back then. And that was who I was. And I always wanted to change it, but I couldn't. And I was afraid of myself. I was angry, and I didn't know why. There was like this low-level rage that was always just there. And then I found Jesus. And the rage was still there for a good while. But over time, I remember one time I was sitting in, it was my, high, my senior year in high school, I was sitting in the, in the commons, and I had a really good friend back then named Doug. And he looked over at me and says, Aaron, I don't remember the last time you lost your temper, which was a big deal because beforehand, I threw him through a wall once. And I couldn't either. But God's seed is in me. And it's in you. And that's one of the things that we look into our lives is you should look back every year. I, I take a look back in my life and say, "How God, how have you grown me? And you should be able to look in your life and say, am I a different person now? Because God is at work in you. And that's a great motivation to know that obedience is not just something that we do, but God helps us. He transforms us from the inside out. He implants a new nature. He doesn't just rip out the old one. He transforms it. Now, our, our uh, next one that we have, oh, let me get there, is that we have a witness of the Holy Spirit that's in our lives. That, that's a motivation to change, right? Verses 19 through 24. And if uh, I get to 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth and how our hearts are set at rest in his presence. Don't you want to know that? In the word, this is how we know that we're in. (laughs) If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, then we have confidence before God and we receive from him anything we ask because we have kept his commands and do what pleases him. And this was what he commanded us, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commands lives in him and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. Again, he's explaining the very beginning. How do we know? We know it by the spirit he gave us. You have a different spirit. You have a whole, God himself. We got the Holy Spirit, right? Different, other, mighty God in you. And he testifies on our behalf. I love how this goes into there because it starts with, this is how we know we have it even when our hearts condemn us. Your salvation is not contingent upon your feelings. But the devil uses our feelings all the time, doesn't he? When you are struggling in faith, and your faith is a mustard seed at best, the enemy is right there saying, you are not walking with the Lord. He doesn't want you. You're not his child. You're disobedient and bad. 
And he makes us run from our Father who can help us. But I will tell you this, that God saves us regardless of how we feel about it. You've come to him. You've been saved by grace through faith. You are saved. You are his. You are his child. That's an amazing thing. And so even when our hearts condemn us, the Holy Spirit is there testifying on our behalf, saying, no, you're mine. And he's not going to leave you, and he's not going to abandon you. That's amazing. What a motivation it is for us then. I think sometimes we find that the fear of failure is the very thing that keeps us from succeeding, isn't it? And most things in life, right? I've been in times when I've been wanting to try something new, and I'm like, I'm not going to try that because I don't think I'm going to be excellent at it at first because none of us are, and so I don't try. But here's the thing. In faith, you're not going to be excellent at first. Think about a baby when it's born. Are they awesome at being human? No. But they grow, and they have freedom to, to fail. They have freedom to try and to... They have a safe place to grow in. They have a family. And you, my brothers and sisters, have a family. Now, how do we know that we have the Spirit in us? Other places in the Word tell us that there's fruit, there's there's evidence of the Holy Spirit. It will begin to grow in our life. There are going to be things like love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness and kindness and goodness. Right? Long-suffering. That one's a tough one. Self-control. These things should start to grow in your life. You should be looking at your life over the long haul, over the, the course of your, of your walk with the Lord, and you should be finding yourself changing who you are. That's an evidence that he's in you because you think just naturally you're going to be a, just a more loving person or kind or patient or gentle. The Holy Spirit is not a joke. He's real, and he changes people from the inside all the time, billions all around the world, and he's in you. So you should see evidence of him. And I think that's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does is he empowers godly living, doesn't he? Why would God give us the Holy Spirit? Well, because we need him. He helps us as a seal and a guarantee of our salvation, is what he said. And that Holy Spirit is in you. And one of the evidence is not just the fruit, but it also empowers you. He changes you from the inside out so that you naturally lead a better life. That you lead a life that's honoring to God and not selfish, self-centered. The second test that he gives us then is not just obedience, but this is the second test of love. And this is our second, uh, this is an important one. Chapter 4 states that, that those who are born of God prove it by their love, right? So John gives us five motivations for Christian love. Reasons that we should love one another. And the first one is that we do have that better spirit, right? We start on first, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4. It says, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And I'll tell you, this world has got a lot of false spirits, doesn't it? And a lot of false prophets. There are a lot of things that people say, believe this and this will change you. But people lack the power to change ourselves, ultimately. But God can do something. So it says, test the spirits. Make sure you're believing what is right and what is true. And verse 2, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Aren't you happy that the Word of God has some really practical things? This is how you can do it? How? Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is even already now in the world. But dear children, uh, but you, dear children, are from God, and you have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Boom! Isn't that awesome? We have a better spirit inside of us. He dwells within us, and God is a God of love, which means his spirit is of love will be in us, and that's a great motivation to be a loving person, right? 
And what is love? Well, not the way the world loves it. Right? Not the way the world is. I'm going to take care of you because you take care of me. You have something of value, so I'm going to care for you. No, no. God's love is so much richer and deeper, isn't it? It's to love even those that don't love us back. One of the evidence, Jesus gave us impossible things to do so that we would know that it's not just us that does them. One of them is love your enemies. Impossible. They're your enemies for a reason. Right? But God, he can love your enemies through you. Pray for those who persecute you. You can't do that. Maybe for a little while, but over time it wears on you. Forgive people when they don't deserve it. The injustice on the inside of us will prevent us from doing that. But God will work in you. You have a far superior spirit. We can live a different kind of life. A much better, a much better way to be human. And so we look into our life and we check our spirit. Do we see the world from a worldly viewpoint, an ethic? Do we care for people just because of the way that everybody else in the world cares for people? Are you looking into your life, those that are around you, are you finding the capacity to love them beyond yourself? This is evidence of God in you. You know, that kind of love, it, it does say, it should lead to an active and a growing love for also other believers, shouldn't it? Because God loves his children. And if we love God, then we're going to love his family too. And that's one of the natural byproducts. And you'll find that people in Christ, that you'll find people all around the world who are Christians and instantly you have an affection and affinity for. Why? Because the same spirit that's in you is in them. It's an amazing thing. The second thing, motivation he gives us is that Jesus' sacrifice is a great motivation for love. Verses 9 through 11, again, that he says uh, that no one is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. Oh, wait, that's the wrong past chapter. You're like, Aaron, it was good. It's a great passage. This is how, here we go, chapter 4, this is how God lo- showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son to the world that, he might, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God loved us, we ought to love one another. Isn't that amazing? Very practical. Jesus loved you that much, but he didn't just love you. He loved us. And if we love Christ, then we need to love what he loves. It's part of just a right relationship, right? And so we find that uh, Jesus' death proved God's love. And that compels us to care for one another. The Christian who says, I, don't, I love Jesus, but I hate his church, is missing the point. Right? If you said, Aaron, I really like you, but I hate your wife and son, you don't like me. You don't love me. These are the people that I love the most in the world. If you accept me, you accept them. And believers, I know that we're not perfect, right? All of us have our moments we are hard to get along with, Right? But we have to care for one another. And we're not perfect. And if anyone thinks this is the perfect church, then you're delusional. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? We care for one another because God cares for us. And there's grace here to mess up. And there's grace here to, to fall down and others to help pick you up. But there's also opportunity here to love supernaturally, to forgive others in their immaturity, 
to care for people who are different than us because we have the same spirit. It's a different way. And so we look at Christ and we say, he paid for this, we need to honor it. Also, we have the witness of the Holy Spirit. What a great motivation to love, verses 12 through 16. He says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is in us and his love is made complete in us. And this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. Here's another great test. This is how we know he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love of God for us. How beautiful. God loves us, and yet we know that he loves other people. One of the things is that God's given us his Holy Spirit so that we can care for one another. A new spirit, a way to care for one another. What a great motivation. You have been empowered to love each other and to care for one another. In fact, Jesus even said that would be evidence of, of, to the world that we were legitimate. In John chapter 20, when Jesus prays for us, the only time in Scripture that he actually prays for us, John chapter 17, sorry, and he prays for us. And he says this in his prayer, Father, make them one as you and I are one, right? And so that the world will know that you have sent me and that I have sent them into the world. How amazing is that? This is our evidence to the world. Better than any apologetic can possibly be is our care, how we treat one another. And so love one another. And God has given us the ability to do that. The reason it is evidence to the world because people are are incapable of that kind of care and compassion. But the church is not because the church has the Holy Spirit. What a great motivation. Another reason that we we look to have a test of love is we remember Christ's return. And a great motivation this is for us to love one another. Jesus is coming back. It's like the kids that are fighting and and the mom says, listen, straighten up, kids. You've got to care for each other. And they're like, oh, okay, right? And then she goes into the other room and she says, I'm going to be back in five minutes. You guys have better made this right. And she comes back in five minutes. You better make it right. Jesus is coming back. He told us to love one. He commanded us to love one another. He's given us the Holy Spirit to love one another. We have no excuse if we don't love one another. And he's coming back, and there will be a time that it says that we will, we will answer for how we treat. And it says this in verse, uh, last part of 18, it says, God is love. How cool is that? Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. And this is how we love, uh, this is how love is made complete amongst us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. You want confidence when Jesus shows up? You're not ashamed? You're like, cool, Jesus is coming back. Awesome. You want to have that? This is this. In this world, we are like Jesus. What? It doesn't mean that you walk around in sandals and stuff like that. What it does mean is that you care for other people, that you love them. How did Jesus demonstrate his love for us? He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And he goes on to talk about that that fear is not part of the Christian life, that oftentimes we fear God's return. We recognize the judgment's coming back, and it makes us nervous because we're not doing the right things. It says this, there is no fear in love. Look, verse 18. Because perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. They don't get it yet. You're not saved because you've been perfect. You're not saved because you do everything right. You're saved because God loves you, right? And that love then compels us to love other people. But knowing that Jesus is coming back, that, there's a, that he's going to say, why have you lived the life that you have? And you're going to have to answer for that? That's a good motivation. And for us, when we are saying, we are being 
unfaithful. We're not fellowshipping with the body of Christ. We're not caring for other Christians, right? We received all of God's love. We receive all the benefits, and yet we don't make his priorities ours. He's going to ask you about that. So be ready to answer the question. But if you are here and you care for other people and you are a committed part of God's family and you are growing together and you are caring for one another and you are witnessing to the world the way Jesus tells you to witness by loving each other, that when he comes back and he says, how did you spend this life? What was your witness? You'll be like, this is what I did, imperfect as it was. And you'll be like, well done. Perfect love drives out fear. Jesus' return is an awesome motivator for us. And I don't think that we use that enough. That he is returning. The last reason he gives us motivation is that God loves us. He just does. That's a great reason to love. Verses 19 says here, We love because he first loved us. You know this is scientifically proven to be true? That uh, I said a couple weeks ago, there was that experiment where the people could pour hot sauce onto somebody else's food. And they couldn't see it, you know, the other way. Most people pour, like, not hot sauce, just like a little bit. But then they'd have that person go do something mean. And then, and then it's retaliation. If you could put hot sauce onto somebody who was mean to you, you'd just, like, put death sauce on there, right? All of us are that way. But then they did that same experiment, and they had that mean person go in and and the, the folks were going to put death sauce on there, but the, the person that was administering the test was kind to them. And we found that people didn't put death sauce on other people's things, that justice was overcome by mercy. That's the way that human heart is wired. We love compassion. We are built for compassion. How do we love? Because God loved us. I can forgive you because you have wronged me far less than I've wronged God. That's why. That's a great motivation, isn't it? I can forgive you because God has forgiven you. Right? We can love each other. I can seek your need above my own because God has met my greatest needs. It's not about me anymore. That is a great thing. See, this unbelieving world that we live around hasn't experienced God's love. And we get frustrated as Christians because they don't love the way that God does. We've experienced true love. We've experienced grace when we didn't deserve it, and God still cares for us. And we look at this world, and they treat each other horribly, and it makes us upset. And they treat us horribly, and it makes us upset. But they've never experienced that same kind of love. They don't have the capacity to love like we do. But we have experienced that. I think that's why the Christians all over the world, where are the most orphanages and hospitals and all those, the food service pantries and all those things? Well, starts most of those. I mean, the great majority throughout the world. Christians. We give because we've, been, we've received so much. And our hope isn't in this world anyway. A great motivator is if you're finding yourself having a hard time to love somebody, the first thing you can look at is say, God, you've loved me. And I'll tell you, this is really helpful because uh, like when I was first married, Amy and I would occasionally have these squabbles because life was uh, different living together, right? And we had our own preferences. And, and I had a, a good mentor, Scott, who was a pastor here before, and he helped me one time because I was really frustrated with something Amy was doing. And he says, Aaron, um, I'm not justifying what she's doing. That would be annoying, right? But God accepted you, and you're annoying too. <laughs> and that was true. Right? Looking back, if you say, how do I love other people? Start with God's love for you, and it will give you the power and the motivation to love others. The last test that God gives us, or John gives us here, is test of truth. This is a test to make sure that our faith is real. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. We want to make sure that our faith is not some pie-in-the-sky dream that is actually based on a God who can really save us. 
right? That's, that's some powerful stuff. So what we have here is it's the, in this last chapter, chapter 5, we know is an operative phrase. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can just circle all the time you find. We know it's fun to do. It's like hunt and find. But it's, it's the thing that John is going through and saying, this is our confidence. This is how we know that this is true. It's not just wishful thinking. And there are five certainties found in this last short chapter. And the first one is we know uh, what a Christian is. And aren't you glad that the scripture actually talks about exactly what a Christian is? And so we find that a Christian, in verse 1 through 5, here we hear, it says, uh, We write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. A Christian is somebody who believes that Jesus is God the Son. Right? We're not, remember the beginning, we recognize that he came to earth. Right? Anybody who confesses that Jesus came in the flesh is from God. Jesus was a real historical person, his, historical person who died. We also, a Christian, is somebody who believes that Jesus is also God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a wise individual, right? He's not just somebody who had good ideas back then. He is God. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus as our Lord. That means that we believe that he is God and Savior. And second thing, verses 2 and 3, a Christian is not just somebody who believes that. Um, it says, that uh, says, uh, Sorry, I skipped ahead. Everyone who believes that Jesus is God, um, Christ has been born of God, and everyone who li- loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we, lo- that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. So the second thing that he tells us to do is we obey. Not only believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but we also obey. We actually, we say Jesus is God, and therefore I treat him as God. He's going to tell me to do things. God's ethics are different than yours. That's the point. And so there are going to be things in the Bible that you're going to say, I would do this differently. And God says, that's why the world is so messed up. So obey him. The next thing that we find, verse 4, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And then the next thing as a Christian is someone who overcomes this world. We are more than overcomers. I love that. It's not when we just like barely make it, but God is like just because we're with him. I mean, we're crushing it. This is great. Which means in this world, we're not just, uh, that's why we have unshakable faith. We're not worried about the state of this world because we know the God who holds it. And that we are people that don't just live lives like tossed about like in the ocean just as, as victims of circumstances life. There is a sovereign God who has his hand on, on your life. And he is doing something in you and through you. There is purpose today. And there is faithfulness today. We overcome this world. My favorite comes next, verse 5. For who is it that overcomes this world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. What a great thing. You don't overcome the world because on your own steam. We overcome this world because we know God is the one who has the power in this. That Jesus is God the Son. He's working in us. And so we find that our, we know that a Christian is, is somebody who believes that Jesus is God. Over, that obeys Christ's commands. That overcomes this world and, and is saved by God's grace through faith in him. Right? We believe that Jesus is God. It is faith. It's so powerful, isn't it? Christian is a person that lives by that faith. Also, we know who Jesus is. We don't just know who God is, but who Jesus is. Verses 6 through 6, it says, Jesus is the one who came by the water and the blood. This is Jesus Christ. Right? He did not come by the water only, but by water and blood. And this is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. 
And the three testified are in agreement. And we accept the testimony because it's a testimony of God, uh, is because, because it's a testimony of God, which he has given about his son. We, we understand that Jesus, who he is, and there's three things he gives us as tests. And this sounds interesting. Well, the water by the blood and the spirit. Well, what's the water? His baptism. Remember when John was there at the baptism? He said, this is what I've seen and heard. He begins with that. I was there. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Was it just like anybody else's baptism? No, like uh, God the Father says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased, right? The Holy Spirit alights on him like a dove, right? It was pretty fantastic. It was super special baptism. It was one of the ways we testimony is that God himself audibly spoke and said, this is my son, And John was there to hear it. That's the first one. The second one was his blood. That's the sacrifice. That's him going to the cross. Jesus did what the Messiah was called to do. He died for all sins, and he overcame them, right? And then he rose from the dead. That's the second testimony. It is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the third one is the Spirit. God's Holy Spirit, who's come into this world, testifies it. Look what happened at Pentecost when God's Holy Spirit showed up. What was the, what was the, the sermon that, that God the Holy Spirit spoke through Peter? It says, the Messiah, Jesus, God has come. You killed him, but that was okay. It was his plan. He's come back. Now come to him. That was the testimony. But you know, God's Holy Spirit also gives us this. The Bible is the inspired word of God as well, and it testifies to him. We have three testimonies, all divine, all pointing to Jesus. And I love it says that it says that we accept um, it says the three are in agreement, verse 8, and we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater. And I love this. Why is it greater? Because it is the testimony of God. So there you go. And God's not going to lie about it. Aren't you happy that it's not some prophet saying, trust me, Jesus is God, but that God himself said, this is my son. And we have the word of God itself that testifies to him. From the Old Testament, over 300 prophecies pointing right to Jesus. The New Testament, all of the, the stories that are verifiable. And all of the wonderful stories of faith that we find that Jesus does overwhelms this world and overcomes it in amazing ways. There's a testimony that we have so we know exactly who Jesus is. He is God the Son, Savior of the world. Verses 11 through 13 then tells us some great things about that. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son does not have life. Boom. Salvation is by faith through Jesus Christ alone. But isn't it great that salvation is by, Jesus Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ? So we know who God is. Third uh, thing that we have as far as this test of truth, this is a, a way of, of practicing it, we, we know how to pray. This is a great thing that we have. Verses 14 it says, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know he hears us, whatever we ask, that we know that we have whatever we ask of him. I think as Christians, also, we know we can talk to God. So like in Hebrews, it says we can walk to him, boldly approaching him, because we are his children. And so we pray with expectation. We know that he hears us. You don't have to walk up to a dead stone idol, bring the right kind of sacrifice, and hope that that God will accept you. God hears you, even in the quiet prayers of your heart. He hears you. Confidently, you know that he hears you. Sometimes you might wish that he didn't, but he always does. So we pray with expectation. Know that we're not just praying to a rock or a stone or an imaginary spaghetti monster. We're praying to God Almighty. He has the power to do things. 
But we also pray with compassion, don't we? Because God can change hearts. And that's one of the greatest things that we find here, that in verse 16, if you see a brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray that God will give them eternal life. Christians are not supposed to be a church judging one another, saying, oh, ha, ha, you messed up. God's going to strike you bad, right? And I hope you mess up because you make me look better as a Christian when you mess up. That's not how we pray. It says we look to one another, and if we find each other following into sin, we're, we're not imperfect, we expect it, but we pray in compassion, knowing that God hears us, and God can change hearts. Last motivation we have here is that we know how to live. It's how we, the test of truth is we know how to live a new life. It's not, it's not guesswork for us. Verse 18, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who has been born of God keeps them safe. The evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are the children of God and the whole world is under the control of the evil one. But we know also that God, the Son of God has come and has given them understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and the eternal life. You don't have to worry about, do I know how to do this Christian life? God doesn't tell you how to do it perfectly. When a baby is born, you don't tell them how to, to do their taxes, right? You love them that step. And then you teach them how to, how to walk, right? And then you teach them how to dress themselves. And then you teach them how, and as they grow, God teaches us, you know, we teach each other how to do it. But as we grow in faith, God teaches us that next step. But we know this, that when we live in him, there's a different way of life. It's a way of truth. We're actually, our morals are based, are rooted in actual truth. What, what is actually right and wrong. Isn't that awesome? And so we are free to live as children of God. We are free to, to live outside of the control of the enemy, right? We are free in a whole new way to grow up in faith and to follow God. How awesome. The very last phrase of 1 John, it is a baffling to some. They say, why did he end there? Maybe he ran out of ink. I don't think so. He says, dear children, keep yourself from idols. Doesn't that sum it up? Doesn't that sum it up? An idol is something we, anything other than God, that we revolve our life around. Anything that our life revolves around other than God. And he says, children, you are, you are different. You are the children of God. And he loves you deeply. And he's given you a spirit to, to live a whole new way. Don't go back to cheap living. So, we have that. We know the truth. That's verse 20. We know the truth. We know an idol when we see it because we have the one true God. So our takeaways today, what do Christians do? How do we test our faith to know what's real? Well, true Christians live in the light. That's one of the things that we've seen all the way through this, right? That there is truth and we live our life in this new way, a pure life. We give ourselves to that perfectly? No. But consistently, yes. We are devoted to it. The second thing we know about Christians, we test our faith as Christians grow in love. I should look in my faith. If the, soul, if the seed of God is in me, it should be growing. Is there evidence? Is there fruit of the Holy Spirit? Are you able to, to live this different way? Are you having compassion for the church and for other people? Are you able to, to find God's character growing in you, even if it's not perfect? Third thing we find is that Christians hold the truth. There are a lot of people out there that are very convincing and have great ideas about how, who God should be, but none of them are God who said, this is who I am. And we have the testimony of Christ. 
We have the testimony of his cross. We have the testimony of Jesus in the word itself. We know who God is, and so we hold to that, and we live our lives according to the truth that God has given us in Scripture, knowing it is God-breathed. We can test the faith, but also we can live in this faith and enjoy all the great benefits of it. So what do we do with it? What's the next step? How do we take this book and apply it into our lives? Well, if you take your connection card, I've got some, some next steps for you, some things that you can do, even this week, because faith is a journey, and so we should always be taking steps closer to God. So what can you do? First, the first thing you might want to do in the back, you say, I'd, I would, uh, this week I commit to, maybe this week I commit to memorizing 1 John 3, 1. I mean, to say to yourself, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God. You know how powerful that is when the enemy's there telling you that you're worthless, that you're, you're weak, that God doesn't love you? You could say, ho, 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 I've got the testimony of the word itself. See what great love the Father has lavished on us. When you're feeling that the storms of life are coming in and life is difficult and God may feel distant, you could say, no, 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 see what great love the Father has lavished on us, on me, that I should be called a child of God. Memorize this passage. It is powerful. It will anchor you and and, and it will help you as you grow in faith. Maybe something else that you can do is that you can read 1 John chapter 3 through 5. You can actually read the whole book if you want to. It's not that long. But find some time this week. Spend some time with God. Ask him to speak his truth in your life. Maybe the third thing you can do is invite a friend next week. I've been asking you to pray for Easter. Now go out and we've been praying for the community to go and do it. Right? And so invite a friend or two to join you this this Easter so we can share with them the great news of who Jesus is. Maybe the last thing you could commit to this week is to obey, to love, or to believe. Maybe it's in there, you're looking in your life, and you're saying, you know, as a child of God, I'm a disobedient child. God still loves me, but I'm disobedient, and I know that I am, so you start with saying, God, I confess that what I'm doing is outside of your will. I'm turning that over. You help me. And you're going to continue to mess up, and he's going to continue to love you and help you, but you're going to pray for that. Maybe the second thing, maybe you're looking in your life, you're just like, you know what? I love God, but I can't stand his people. Maybe what you begin with is you start loving God's people, praying for them, right? You say, I'm going to commit to, to, to them because God has. Or maybe the third thing you say is, I'm going to believe. I've got doubts. Well, that's fair. You've got doubts. Hold to God even despite them, and you pray. Say, God, I'm going to commit to you even my belief. What I want you to do is take those, these connection cards, make your commitment. Maybe you've got a prayer request. Uh, you can write those down, and, and then in a second, we're going to take our offering. Let's take our offering, take these, and put this in the offering basket as it's passed. Appreciate that. All right, let's pray for our offering, and then we'll have the worship band come and close us with some worship. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love and your kindness, your goodness. Father, thank you for the promise that we have in Christ. Thank you for the salvation that is in him. Father, we also thank you for your love. You've called us your very own children. Now, Lord, help us to live like your children, as obedient children, not as the disobedient ones. Let us walk in your grace as we also, Father, uh, allow the Spirit of God, the seed of God, to grow in our hearts and lives, that we could live pure lives that testify to who you are in our community. Father, we pray for the commitments that were made today. Help us, Lord, to keep those in a way that changes us from the inside out and that honors you. Father, we pray for for Easter next week that you would fill this space, that many would come and hear the gospel and respond. Father, we pray for that through all of the churches of Nessus as well. Father, we also pray for our uh, offering that we're about to take. Lord, thank you for giving us everything we need so that we can give back to you, invest in your kingdom. What a privilege. May you use these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings to grow your church, to grow your family, and your love and your light in this valley, we ask in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.